everybody. I'm Kathy Deacon, and I am recovering one day at a time in the Worldwide Al-Anon Family Groups. Hi, it's good to be here in Indiana, um, <clears throat> because it's so close to home. <laughs> but I want to thank Brenda for inviting me to come um, to do the Indiana State Aid Convention and share with you my story. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's a great story for me. It's it's a great story for me. But I don't know how much, um, for some of you, I, I don't know if I have anything new to say. I was just saying in the taper, you know, how it was and what happened, that pretty much all stays the same. But the truth is, my perspective on that changes as I get older and as I become more um, entrenched, I think, in this, um, in this program of recovery. Uh, I want to thank all of you who have worked so hard to put this convention on. I uh, have just recently begun saying, last year in the state of Ohio, Al-Anon, uh, Cincinnati Al-Anon was supposed to host the Al-Anon State Convention. And one of the reps came to our my home group and said, well, we're just not going to be able to have an Al-Anon Convention this year because nobody's willing to chair it. And I remember thinking, oh my God, that is the oddest thing. I can't, I can't believe that. Because my home group really could put on a world convention blindfolded. I mean, we have so many capable people in that meeting. So I went home and I called a friend of mine who actually was in that meeting but wasn't there that day. And I said, Sue, if you'll chair it, I will co-chair it. How hard can it be? And so I have today a real... uh, appreciation for a convention. It wasn't certainly as large as this, but it was a nice size convention, and it's a lot of work, and it depends on a lot of people showing up and being willing to serve. Um, and there are a lot of things, you know, I was like kind of laughing to myself when I heard about the coffee thing. When we discovered how expensive coffee is, I don't know, maybe you get it for cheaper, maybe you get it cheaper in Indiana, but in Cincinnati, it's $30 a gallon. So I, when I heard that, I said, well, how much is wine? <laughs> Jesus, Mary and Joseph, So we didn't even have coffee. We had water. It was great. We saved a lot of money. And, um, and of course, there's always people that are going to be unhappy. But no matter how it goes, there are always some people who are going to be unhappy because they're always unhappy. Let's face it. <laughs> so we say to ourselves, you know, bless them, change me. I mean, that's an old Al-Anon thing. Bless them, change me. Um, <clears throat> I'm really surprised there's this many people here this morning. That's one of the nice things about being the Al-Anon speaker at an AA convention. Usually, usually I get the 6.30 a.m. slot, which is fine for me, you know, because it's in a minute, and, but I have a sister-in-law who's just celebrated 35 years in AA in Cincinnati, and she was once said to me, whenever I go to an, an AA convention, I always go to hear the Al-Anon speaker. And I said to her, because, because you know it's a family disease, right? And she said, oh no, because it makes me so grateful I drank. <laughs> So, but, you know, that is the one thing that I heard that was very important when I came in, is that this is, you know, this is a family disease, and we're all, we're all about recovery, no matter 
what meetings we go to, we all have, I think, a primary purpose, a primary purpose. Um, sometimes there's tension. I've never really noticed it in Cincinnati, but as I go around the country, sometimes I sometimes note a, a, a tension between the AAs and the Alamans, and I'm not really quite sure what that's about. A woman said to me one time, well, those of us in Al-Anon um, are, well, the women, we're just afraid that, you know, those AA, that those AA women will take our husbands. And I was like, they will? I didn't realize they were willing to do that. <laughs> How supportive. I have a good friend in uh, Al-Anon, she just celebrated 30 years, and she, um, goes on a lot of those elder hostel, they're not elder hostel anymore, they're called road scholar trips. And she's just fallen in love with them. She loves them. And she was on one about four weeks ago, and she was <laughs> in Florida. And I don't know how this, she was on this boat, they were going through the Everglades, and this guy started to talk to her, blah, 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 blah. And finally, um, she said to him, he must have said something in reference to being a recovering alcoholic. And she said, are you a friend of Bill Wilson's? And he said, yeah. Why, are you a friend of Lois's? And she said, yes, I happen to be a friend of Lois. And he said, you know what we call you guys in my home group? And she said, no, what, what is that? And he said, go ahead and get it right. <laughs> well, I can't remember the initials, but what? <laughs> The Sisters of Perpetual Resentment, that's what it's like. SPR, Sisters of Perpetual Resentment. And she was, she was emailing this to me, and she wrote, Jackass. So I emailed her back and said, Jackass. I mean, I understand that, but honestly, for those of us in Al-Anon, we're about our own recovery. And I know that there is no way I can walk the spiritual path that is presented to me if I am dragged down and sidetracked by old resentments. And it's difficult when you work with newcomers, uh, particularly, um, <clears throat> because that's not really what a beginner wants to hear. When I came in, well, I came in a little differently, but when most people come in, the last thing they want to hear is that they might be the problem. It's, I mean, it's just not what you want to hear. What I wanted to hear was, how have you done it? How did you hang in there? Wow, you are remarkable. What I did not want to hear was, well, you, you know, you're never going to get better until you can admit how sick you are, too. That's not what I wanted to hear. So, um, <clears throat> and it wasn't said just like that, but I could read in between the lines, because I'm pretty smart. So... <laughs> So, um, what can I tell you? I grew up in, um, well, I always say this. I just had a good friend of mine in my home group say to me, would you quit talking about your happy childhood? And I can't say that it was perfect, but I did. I grew up in a really good place with a mother and father who loved one another and were and continue to be an example of what um, married love should look like. I mean, they just adored one another, and it was just clear to us as kids that that's, that's the way it should be. Um, I grew up, I often say, trusting happiness. Because I had parents that believed that everything really would in the end turn out all right. 
It wasn't going to be easy. They would always say, life is earnest, life is difficult. But there was always that faith and the belief that everything really would be okay. And so with that, I really um, had a great time growing up. I mean, I had a lot of friends. They are still, I mean, boys and raised in Cincinnati. I'm one of six kids. My brothers and sisters and I are pretty close. Um, I have a lot of childhood friends that are still my friends today. I have um, grade school friends. You know, just the other day, I was over at Xavier University listening to um, a woman who was one of the survivors of the Rwandan genocide, Immaculate, and uh, she was speaking, and I was there with this friend of mine. And as I was sitting there listening to this woman share a story of terrific hope and faith, what struck me is that I was sitting next to a gal who has been my friend for almost 62 years. That's the kind of blessings that I have in my life that alcoholism almost robbed me of. Because alcoholism for me was a disease that led me into isolation. Because trying to pretend like everything was okay when it wasn't just became so difficult and so exhausting for me that it would be easier for me to retreat from these lifelong relationships, which today are the greatest blessings in my life. I had some health issues a year ago, and what it did was it really allowed me to stay at home for about six months, and that six months gave me an opportunity in a really deep way, much deeper than I generally do on a daily prayer and meditation uh, practice, to really look at my life. And I can tell you that what came out of it for me in those six months of deep reflection was an awareness of the fingerprints of God all over my life. And one of the gifts for me from Alan is that assurance that I am never alone, that I never have walked through any situation by myself, that I am surrounded not only by the arms of a loving, compassionate, merciful, and faithful God, but of men and women like yourselves who have traveled this road with me for almost 34 years. Um, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm just really overwhelmed some days with, with, with gratitude. The scale that I um, spoke about, you know, the sister perpetual resentment, yesterday we were having lunch before I headed down here, and um, she just got back from New Zealand. I mean, she's going crazy with the travel thing. But anyway, so we were sitting there talking, and she was sharing a little bit about this and that, and... Um, I said to her, you know, Diane, I am so happy with where I am today. And I know I would not be here if I hadn't come the way that I had come. I believe in what I call a green God, an environmental God where nothing is wasted. Everything that I've walked through has brought me where I am today. Everything belongs because I believe in a God that can take 
really the garbage of our lives and spin it in the bowl. It can take the heartbreak and the sadness, really, and turn it into a rich fertilizer for myself and for people with whom I'm willing to share my story. And so I think that's for for so many of us. That's how it works. If we are willing to be honest and open with one another. And that's how many of us are at service. You know, I just, I, well, I really, I, I, Buzz is the one that, that got me to speak many years ago, truly. And uh, because in Cincinnati, um, the, the Al-Anon speaker didn't show up or got sent back. And, and so one of my sister-in-laws called and said, well, would you just go to the Zeta Convention over in Sharonville and just speak? And I'm like, what? I don't do that. Well, so, but I but I went because uh, I love my sisters-in-law, and, and Buzz just happened to send my tape somewhere, and you know, when they had the little tapes, and that's just that's just how it worked for me. But I'm surrounded by people in my home group and in the greater Cincinnati area that are service in a million different ways. And believe me, just because I speak does not mean that I work a better program. Because, because honestly, most days I'm an idiot, and I will go back to my room today, and I, the first thing I will say is. Oh, I hated that talk. I hated that, oh, all the things that I forgot, blah, 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 blah. And then I'll remember that that's my ego, and who cares, really? <laughs> who cares? So, um, <clears throat> so great place. Love my home. Raised these, these great nuns, different orders. All of them were really wonderful women. Taught me the importance of sacrifice, service, you know, giving to others, taking your COVID. Somebody didn't have one, ripping it in half. I mean, all that stuff so many of us were taught. Um, <clears throat> some of it's culture, some of it for me was um, religious, but all that stuff that I heard as a kid had to do with putting myself last and making sure that you were okay, doing for others that I really wasn't going to be okay unless you were okay. That was important to me, that you felt good about yourself, that you were having a good time. And if I wasn't having a good time, well, that was okay because of this thing about always doing for others. And I I can't say it's nobody's fault. Maybe it was just the time, but I was not raised with a lot of lessons in self-care. Even though, interestingly enough, I have a mother who, I mean, she'll be 99 in May. And she, no, she is, she, her, I, when I forget things, I call her. I say, Mom, who was that woman that used to, I mean, she knows everything. I mean, her only complaint is that she is a hammer toe. She is, she's incredible. She's like this outlier. But she has a theory that I never got, and I don't know after living with her all these years, about not suffering fools. I grew up believing that there was something noble about accepting unacceptable behavior. I don't know where I got that. I didn't get that from her. She will say, even today, when people say to me, my mother says, well, he is a little cold cold, but when you get to know him, you'll like him. She will say, I don't have that kind of time. And for me, you know, that, it, well, for whatever reason, I mean, and I can't 
can't say this is true for my brothers and sisters, but I'm a middle kid, and I think that's, that has something to do with some things. They're, they're, that's an outside issue. So I'm this middle kid, and for me, I developed this uh, addiction to approval. You know, I'm always trying to work it between my older sisters and my younger brothers and trying to get everybody to agree and kind of like this person who was always running interference. But this addiction to approval, having to be right and always looking good. And I don't mean physically looking good because I can be somewhat of a slob, but I mean just, you know, being in the right place, taking the right stance, having an appropriate response, that kind of thing. Because it worked for me as a kid. It always worked for me as a kid. I mean, the nuns loved me. They thought I was darling. Um, I mean, it, I, I always followed the rules. Unless I, I mean, unless I thought I could get away with it, with breaking them. But I was a very careful kid, always following the rules. And, and I only mention that because I always had attraction to those who broke the rules. And so I have this wide range, even to this day, of friends. Some of them are just absolutely outrageous. And I love them for being outrageous. And then some of them, you know, are really very um, straight and narrow. But when it came to boys, the boys really that I always liked were the, were the bad ones. Um, because they would say and do things I would never dream of saying. So when my high school acquaintances called me and said, hey, my brother, he's um, in Meridian, Mississippi. He's in flight school with the Marines, and he is coming to Cincinnati for Labor Day weekend. And I've, I've fixed him up with everybody I know. Would you go out with him? My response, of course, is always yes. Yeah, of course I will. I hear a lot in, in, at conventions, particularly conventions, you never say no to a request. Well, <laughs> in the meetings that I go to, we can get ourselves in a lot of trouble and have gotten ourselves in a lot of trouble because we always say yes. We always say yes. Sure, I'll do that. Yeah, I can do that. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. I've got about 30 minutes. Sure. I, I, mean, we're all, I mean, for me, I was always saying yes because I always want to make you happy. I always want to take care of you. It's a, it can be a terrible thing. I was almost late today because I had to clean my room before the day. <laughs> That's nuts. Anyway, um, so, so I say yes. Of course I'll go out with them. So I went out with them. <clears throat> and at the time, I was going out with somebody, um, actually from Indiana. Lovely, lovely guy. Totally lovely, quiet, kind. Guy. I go out this morning, he's absolutely crazy. He came to the door with a, a cup, a monogram silver cup filled with bourbon. Now, I'm 20. I think that is so classy. Because I'm in conscience, and we're all drinking three, two beer, you know, out of those wax paper cups. And this guy's got a silver cup full of bourbon. He's a marine pilot. He's got that leather jacket on with, you know, with that, that patch that says one good deal after another, you know, with the marine emblem on. I mean, 
he was just bigger than life for me. And so I really didn't even know what to do with him, to tell you the truth. Except he would always do these fun things when he was in town. He'd rent a plane, and we'd fly over the Ohio River. He'd do stalls over the river, which absolutely terrified me. I would say to his sister, oh my God, every time I'm around him, my heart beats faster. I think I'm in love. And she would say, that's not love, that's fear. <laughs> He really was like nobody I'd ever known before. So I was just gaga. I mean, I, I, and what sealed it, and I've told the story a zillion times, but it's the story that sealed it for me. He had friends, his family raised quarter horses, and he had friends that had horses in Batesville, Indiana. So one time we were heading over to Batesville and taking these two horses with us. I mean, this is, I'm such a city girl, really. There's nothing that makes me feel better than they have concrete under my feet. And to go to sleep at night with the sounds of ambulances and police sirens, I mean, that makes me feel safe. But now, <clears throat> this is a whole different experience, you know, the horse trailer and getting horses on a horse trailer, which is... And so, so we take these horses over to Indiana, and everybody there is grabbing horses left and right and trying to saddle up, and there's this guy in the barn who, like me, he's a city guy. He has no idea what he's doing. He's in Ovet's head. He allowed himself to get between, well, I mean, he's stuck, you know, on the side of the stable. He's up against the stable wall, and that horse knows damn well he doesn't know what he's doing. So the horse just keeps pushing him up against the wall, and he's stuck, and everybody's kind of afraid. So the word goes out, get ready, get ready, get ready, I'm with you, know. So I kind of follow him. I mean, I'm always, he's the kind of guy you always, you never know what he's going to do next. And when I was 20, I thought that was so much fun. <sighs> When I was 28, not so much. <laughs> so I watch him, I follow him into the barn, you know, and he gets in that stall with that horse and he puts his arm around his horse's neck and grabs that horse's ear and bites down on that horse and And it paralyzed that horse. I mean, that horse stood stock still. And, and he saddled the horse. And led the horse out. And this is what I think. And this is why I tell the story over and over again. I thought, there, there's the guy that I want to spend the rest of my life with. What could ever happen to you that this guy could not take care of? Because he had everything that, that I felt that I lacked. That I lacked. Now, you know what's so funny? Um, I'm going to lose myself, but that's okay. When Brenda called me, Oh, and Brenda, thank you for being in touch with me this long time and being such a wonderful connector for me. It means a lot, believe me. When Brenda asked me what if there was a particular page that I wanted to have read, your favorite page, well, I, I, there's just so many pages, you know. There's just so many favorite pieces of Alamo literature. I just thought, well, I'll, I'll get to that, I'll get to that, and then I never got to it. So I said, you know, we'll just read the daily reading for today which they did. And I knew, because it always happens this way, that that would be the exact reading that I, I would have wanted to have, been, to have read. And it was because I am at a place, in, and I've been here before, and then I lose my place, but I'm back again, where I am understanding that the spirituality that is important to me today is not a spirituality of addition. 
is the spirituality of subtraction. That I have what I need to have. What I have to do is to get rid of all those things that always stand in the way. What I need to have moved are those fears, those resentments, that judgmental thinking of mine, that critic, that criticism, that competition. Those are the things. It's a spirituality of subtraction, and that reading today just nailed it. It just nailed it, I thought. So here I am thinking that he's got what I'm missing. And that's why that's why I went with him. Because honestly, I had no ambitions as a kid. You know what I really love to do? I love to talk. I love, I got thrown out of Girl Scouts because I would not stop talking. It's the truth. I got into Girl Scouts and they broke us up into small groups. I thought the neatest, the neatest thing that I'd ever been involved in in my life. I just talked my way from one small group to another and finally I was invited to leave. But because relationships, that's what really is important to me. Are those, are those relationships? I don't know where I went. Where was I? What was I saying? I don't know. Anyway, just a lot of great competition. Uh, so anyway, so this guy, um, I didn't know we were going to get married. He made an announcement. He was in for Christmas one year, and I, at the time, was teaching school in Chicago. So, so I, his family comes from a big family as well, and they were having a Christmas dinner. And uh, he took, announced to his family that he had something to tell them. And so they said, great, what's that? And he said, Kathy and I are getting married. And um, I, I didn't know that. But I, <laughs> you know, this is the thing. What could I say? I'm 21 years old. There's all of his family, all of whom I adored and continue to adore today. And I thought, well, how about look if I say, what? We haven't really talked about that. It's never real because he had to go to Vietnam, and I'm under contract in Chicago. But what I did is what I often would do, and that is just go along. Because when I allow somebody else to take responsibility for decisions, then when everything goes wrong, it's your fault. You're the one that made that decision. I didn't. And, and so... That's where I was going. I really had no big ambitions for myself. I loved to, at that time, my biggest hobbies were reading and smoking. That's what I ever wanted to do, was to have a lot of time, and I wanted to have kids too, but mostly what I like to do is read. You know, someone uh, not so long ago suggested me about drinking, and I love to have a glass of wine now and then, or a beer now and then. But I'll tell you why I don't like to drink too much. It interferes with my reading. It really it does. If you, it, 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 you know, you gotta, I like to be, I like to know what I'm saying, I like to know what I'm doing, and I love to read. So <clears throat> I thought, what the hell, it's just going to read, it'll be fine. It'll be fine, you know? And to tell you the truth, it was. In some ways, it was fine. We got married in January, I had to break the contract in Chicago. Um, got married in January, I got pregnant in February, he got his orders in March, and he was over heading for Vietnam by May. And I was so glad. I mean, I was so glad he was gone. Because he, because right away, I mean, within 10 days, I always say, I knew I was in over my head. Within 10 days, I knew 
I was in trouble. I could, could not tell you exactly why, but I had a sense that there was something going on here. We had never lived together in the same city. And now we're at Cherry Point, North Carolina, and living in a small trailer at not even really a mobile home, a trailer. And I I know that this is this is not gonna be a good thing. And I was gonna leave. But I decided that would be a bad move because that wouldn't look good. You've been married ten days and you show nothing now. That that's not gonna work for me. And so this is what is important for me to say. From ten days in, it became about me. From day ten until I found you, I spent my married life trying to get a square peg into a round hole. For twelve and a half years until I found you, I lived with a guy who I was always gathering evidence against. Constantly building a case that would make me look like, you know, the, the saint and make him look like, you know, this, this troublemaker. That, that's important. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but that's, you know, that's what happened. And from there on in, things for me, I mean, I came to the turning point. I, I no longer was paying attention to me to my own emotional, spiritual, physical health. I became focused on him, always worried, trying to wonder whether what are we going to do next? What's he going to say next? And trying to cover for him always. Because I didn't want you to know what I was living with. Because what would you think of me as a woman? What would you think of me as a wife? What would you think of me as a human being if you knew what I was putting up with? So I covered and I became really a very good actress. And from the moment those guys, that squadron, all got shipped over to Vietnam, I was with mainly Marine Corps wives who were wringing their hands and what should we do? And oh, so I wrung my hands too. And what should we do? And I was like, yes, I just wanted to go home. I just wanted to go home. So I went home. Thought that I'd talk to the police that had married me, and as I walked out the front door of my parents' house, my mother said to me, I hope you're not going to tell them anything personal. Because that's how we were then, back then. We just didn't, you, you, you didn't talk about stuff like that. You kept it to yourself. You suffered. Just like the nuns used to say, you suffered silently. Because if you complain, it doesn't count, of course, if you complain. You have to just... Suck it up. That's what, that's what I thought. So this guy didn't really like every place I went until I found you. There were no answers. There were no answers. And this morning at the Alamar meeting, the topic was hope. The hope that I felt when I came my first meeting, when I got to my first Alamar meeting, is indescribable. I felt from the minute I walked in that door that finally, finally, I was where I was supposed to be. And I had never felt that way until I found you, ever. I was sure that night, April the 5th, 1982, that I was right, I was finally in the right place. After searching, really, going to so many different places, reading different books, all that stuff, and there you were. Oh, what a gift. There you were. So, he came back to Vietnam, decided to, and I'll go quickly, um, 
came back from Vietnam, did we ready to go to dental school? Ah, I always say, I have never known a dentist like this guy. I, I mean, I, I was stunned when he said dentistry. So he used the GI Bill, went to Ohio State, went to dentistry. Right before he left, he was beaten badly in a bar in uh, Newport, Kentucky, which was still a little wild in those days. He had to have surgery uh, before he got to dental school, but he stopped drinking. So the years that we were in dental, he was in dental school. I thought it was because of me that I had been long suffering, that I hadn't been a nag, that I had hung in there. And now everything was going to be fine. Graduated, came back to Cincinnati, had to live in this little rental with his family owned because we had no money. And things just got horrible. And I could not tell you why, because there was no evidence of drinking. But his behavior just went downhill. And because I'm constantly adjusting, and I often say, I always thought I was adjusting to marriage. I'm trying to adjust to alcoholism. And there's no real way to do it. There's no way to do that. There's no way to have an intimate relationship when, you know, when there's no recovery. It's just, you know, I'm trying to do the impossible. And when I'm failing at it, as of course I will, I'm just beginning to hate him. It's just destroying love and respect. But for more damaging, I'm hating me for not being able to find that formula that will fix him. I can't come up with a formula. Because what he's doing now is writing prescriptions for himself as a dentist, and he's uh, narcotics. I mean, he's just writing all these prescriptions for narcotics to numb his feelings. And, you know, he's caught, bounced out of dentistry, and then what's, what, what's, what follows is years of unemployment, which is terrifying for me, which is a terrifying thing for me. And for many people who find themselves unemployed, it can, it's, just, it's just frightening. There are all kinds of things that come up, all kinds of feelings, mainly fears, that come up with unemployment. Um, he could put, you know, he would make a little bit of money here and there by um, selling furs. I mean, he was always an outdoor guy, and so he started hunting fox and selling furs to a furrier in downtown Cincinnati. And... <clears throat> What I always do is try to make it sound, you know, like it was the greatest thing in the world. People are like, what do you mean he's no longer a dentist? He's a fur trapper? What the hell? What? I'm like, oh, he's, too, he's a renaissance man. He's much too big for dentistry. Oh, no. I mean, he's like the Natty Bumbo of Cincinnati. I mean, he is just so talented. And... <laughs> I like to say, it is true that fur trading back, you know, was a lucrative profession back in the 1780s. But in the 1980s, in the 1980s it doesn't bring in a lot of cash. But, but there he had it, you know, and he was trapping a fox, and he was, you know, he had a vegetable garden that was to die for, and everything that he did was so good. I mean, he raised bees, he had honey going, he had all these concerns going. But it was insane. But what happened to me is what always happens to me. I'm trying to make it look like I'm on top of it all. That I'm, I've got, oh, I've got, a, I've got a handle on this. I, I, I can fix this. You know, I know what I'm doing. No, I'm very happy. I've been like this. This is great. It's a little dangerous, you know, when you start shooting out of the bedroom window. But 
He's only trying to kill the blue jays that are attacking his, you know, bird feed for his other favorite birds. He used to say, I only kill the blue jays because they're the felons of the bird world. And so I, I love birds, but I have to think, they're the felons of the bird world. They steal other birds' little eggs. They have to die. I mean, that's what happens to us. I have to adjust. I have to stay one step ahead of this crazy thinking in order to be okay with it. And so as the encroaching suburbs arrive and people are, you know, building uh, this horse farm that we all live on, it's like a compound, <laughs> they start to call because they're missing their cats. And I'm like, I know, and I love my cats. I love them. But they would call and they'd say, you know, I'm missing Tinkerbell. <laughs> and I'd say, well, I'll keep my eye out for Tinkerbell. And I had the phone up and I'd say, you're not sure, cats, please. Because I know he's got these infrared glasses now that allows him to hunt at night. I'm like, you're not shooting cats. He says, only the fat ones. <laughs> No, he says, I can because they are killing the pheasant and quail on our property. And if they're fat, they're being fed at home, and they're just killing for the kill. If they're skinny, I let them go. Because they're... Brenda, Brenda, this is a horrible story. Why are you laughing? I love cats. But if they're scrawny, they're killing to survive, so I let them go. So, I'm thinking, okay, those fat cats, they do have to die. They're just killing for sport. Those scrawny cats, anyway, and it's too much for me. So I gotta stop answering the phone. It's just like everything. That's why, that's why alcoholism take, took me into such isolation. Because I don't even want to answer the phone anymore. We didn't have caller ID then. We were lucky we had a landline. So it's just easier not to deal with them. It's just easier to try to keep the house sane and try to explain to my kids that, <laughs> I don't know, the cat parts that are, I mean, they're just littering and bird with bird feathers. It's just a nightmare, really. It's, parents didn't want their kids playing in our home because it was still legal traffic. <laughs> And I, I would say to the kids, don't let that bother you. I mean, I really, it's all right. These people, they're suburbanized. I call them the, they're the Stepford wives. They don't know what it means to live out in the country. You know, they don't know that all you have to do is open a, open a steel leg hole trap and release a small child. I mean, they'll have, they'll have a bruise. They won't even have severed limbs, whatever. Anyway, so this, uh, that, that's what happened. You see, I mean, I could tell you a zillion stories and I don't have time, but it's just all that backpedaling I'm always doing, trying to make sense of it, trying to make it look like everything's okay and nothing's okay. Nothing is okay. Inside, I am absolutely heartbroken. I am heartbroken and filled with grief for a man that I adored who had so much going for him. Two months ago, I was in a meeting and a woman said, I don't think I fell in love with my husband. I fell in love with my husband's potential. <laughs> uh, anyway, 
somebody like that. If it's a child, I mean, for me, it's a spouse or a child who has so much, and then you just see it squandered as a result of the disease of alcoholism. It's hard. It's hard. And, you know, my sponsor always says, there's no inoculation for that kind of grief. There's no inoculation for that kind of grief. To see my sons, as I have seen two of my boys appear before me in a court of law in shackles and handcuffs, that's a heartbreaker. And what does not help me is when people can say to me, oh, they're just out there working on their lead. Well, they may be. But insane for me is not to feel that grief. To, to pretend like your heart isn't breaking, that to me is real insanity. What works for me is to share that grief with another member of the fellowship who can sit with me in my grief and share their own experience and let me know that, you know, really, all will be well. This is tough. It's difficult. You don't have to go to it alone. But all will be well. All can be well. And that's the beauty of this program, is to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And oftentimes it's you, for me. It's you. It's your willingness to share your own journey with me so that I know that I'm not, I'm not in it alone. I'm not in it alone. So anyway, to make a long story short, one of the sisters in the compound, Jack, Alan and I went to a couple of meetings. She was invited to go to a meeting across the hall. And um, she became a member of AA, still an active member of AA today, and another sister joined, and another sister-in-law, another sister in blah, blah, blah. In very short order, I had four sister-in-laws in, in AA, very quickly. I always say it was like alcoholics unanimous. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that they, you know, really were pushing for me uh, and trying to encourage me to go to Al-Anon, but honestly, I really wasn't very interested because I was exhausted. I just had been to so many places, and I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to outlive him. That's what I'm going to do. I'll just outlive him. He's four years older than I was, and when I outlived him, I'd have been four years. So I always thought at the end of my life, I'd have these eight years that would be relatively peaceful. And I was banking on that, banking on it. But now they're talking about this being a family business, and I've been in their family for years, and I'm pregnant with child number seven, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm never going to get away from this disease. This is going to haunt me. It's going to block, block, you know, it's going to follow me. And so I'm going to go get some information. So I went to a beginner's meeting. Uh, I went to an Al-Anon beginner's meeting, and really that's where I heard the good news. Alcoholism is a family disease that I didn't cause, can't cure, can't control. Never thought I caused it, ever. Always thought if I were loving, patient, Loyal, I should be able to cure it. I should be able to cure it. Love comforts all. I was always taught that. And that wasn't working. So when this woman said to me, Oh, well, you know, you, you don't know. It's, it's not, it really is. It's drinking is in your business. I said, Well, you know, that's kind of odd to say. But I said to her, You know, I'm not even really sure it's an alcohol. And well, said, Well, is this drinking ever a problem in your life? And the answer to that was this. Every time he drank, it was a problem. Every time he drank, somebody got hurt. And so she said, you're in the right place because this is a program for you. And that's what's important for me to know. Alan is a program for me. 
so that I can recover from the family disease of alcoholism. And it doesn't matter what anybody else in my life is doing. It's a program for me. I was at my home group a couple of weeks ago, and um, I didn't have the beginner's that, that, that week, but somebody else had it, and I happened to know one of the beginners. So I went up to him, and I said to him, uh, he said, you know, this is a really good meeting. And I said, well, I hope you'll keep coming back, but I hope they've also encouraged you to try out different meetings because there are a lot of sick meetings out there. And I don't know that there's anything sicker than a sick alimony. I mean, that can be downright dangerous. And he said to me, oh, I know what you mean. I was in a meeting last week. He said, oh, they talked about was gratitude. <laughs> oh, they were also grateful for this. They were also grateful for that. And I was like, keep coming back. <laughs> oh, so... So I did start coming back, and I, as I said, because that's, you know, that's what I heard. You know, I was given that image of a hula hoop, you know, that you put a hula hoop around yourself, and everything outside of that hula hoop is really none of your business, and everything within it you need to pay attention to. That responsibility, that being an advocate for self, being about my own recovery, those are things I've heard and continue to hear in this program. I left my home group after 25 years for several reasons, but the biggest reason was I was not getting from it what I felt I needed. It was nobody's fault. One thing is that it was at night, and I get up so early in the morning, so early in the morning, night meetings, I mean, I'm falling asleep, I'm, I'm present, and I thought, this is just simply not working for me anymore. But it's hard to leave something after 25 years that's familiar to you. But I have been to enough open meetings that I hear all you need to start a meeting is a pot of coffee and a resentment. Well, I didn't really have a resentment, but I knew I could get a pot of coffee. And so um, I started a new meeting on Wednesday mornings at 9.30 in Cincinnati. If you're ever there, it's a fifth tradition meeting. And it's a good meeting. It's a strong meeting. But my point is this. I have to be willing. I have to be willing to be my own advocate when it comes to my recovery. I have to be willing to seek out meetings that feed my soul. I have to be willing to be with men and women who really are in recovery, who are practicing the principles in their lives. You know, when I first came in, my sister-in-law, she used to always say, I'm with, I'm with the winners, you got to run with the winners. Right. I mean, I've got to stick with people who are serious about walking a spiritual path. And that's what I heard in the years, and that's still what I hear. That's still what I hear almost 34 years later, is the importance of trusting, the importance of believing. It, it is, as Thomas Martin says, the beginning of love, to allow those we love to be themselves Whatever that means. That comes from a one day at a time reading, actually. June 4th, I think, in the old one day at a time book. That struck me so much. Because so many people out there will say, leave it, throw it out. They've heard of that. I mean, you know, everybody's got advice. But what I heard that touched me was that. The beginning of love is to allow those we love to be themselves perfectly. I don't, I don't know how to do that without really, the discipline of the steps that I'm willing to surrender myself to that will, as promised, transform my life.
I don't know how to do that without you. And I have to be with you because I do have a bunch of kids and they continue to make decisions which I consider to be dangerous. So I know that you will help me in continuing to parent them. And even though they're adults, I shared this morning, there is a very fine line for me between parenting and maidening, giving advice. I'm not always sure where that line is. But as a parent, a woman called me not so long ago from Georgia. I don't know how she got my number. And she said, I'm in a home group that's telling me I need to throw my 14-year-old kid out. And I said, well, that's interesting. A, that they're giving you advice. B, that you can throw kids out of your home in Georgia. Because in the state of Ohio, you, you can't do that. <laughs> you stop with them. <laughs> you just stop with them. I even tried that one time. One of the kids was arrested. And uh, the cops called me down from, uh, they were, what's that, District 1. And uh, they said, we've got your son down here. And we picked him up off the street. He's drunk. And I said, thinking I was being very clever, well, I think he should just stay there and I'll pick him up in the morning. And the cops said, lady, if you're not here in 30 minutes, I'm coming out there and arresting you. And I'm like, oh, I'll be there in a second. So I, there are legal limits as to what you can do. But nonetheless, this, you know, what I hear in Al-Anon today and, and heard it you know, years ago is that importance of, of accepting people for where they are. Look, you know, and, and the, the actions that I take. You know, Al-Anon, we, we talk about being powerless over alcohol, and that's true. But it doesn't mean that we're helpless. This is not a program of inaction. We have the three A's. Awareness, acceptance, action. You know, there's this old, you know, I used to, when I used to teach high school, I would say to my students, there's this old um, adage. If you're going to pray for potatoes, pick up a hoe. My high school students would say, did you just say pick up a hoe? <laughs> it's a beauty of teaching high school. But, you know, it's... It's, it's true. We're, this is an action program. It is not a just, well, sit back and watch the whole world collapse. No. I participate. You know what? <clears throat> I was just thinking this the other day. Al-Anon is not my whole life. But it invites me to lead a life that is whole. That's what I have found in this program. That's what I have found in this program. And no matter what, I have to continue. I did then, particularly when they were young, to raise my kids and to parent my children. And the only way I knew to do it was to be in a network of people who were trying to do the same way, who were trying to do the same way. So, got there, loved everything, you know, let go, let God, took that to heart. You know, I learned you could be right, which was wonderful for me, you know, to let go of my idea of myself as the keeper of truth and justice in the relationship. I learned to rely on the wisdom of the group as I continue to do today. All those things that I've learned and continue to learn. Because I come to my meetings with the heart of a beginner. I come to my meetings ready to take in more. I come to conventions like this so that I can, so that I can learn even more from you as we continue along. As I continue along, a spiritual path, which constantly asks me to let go, 
to let go of old ideas and to let go of expectations, which are always the seeds of resentment for me. All those things. It's just, and nothing I've ever learned in Al-Anon in any way has conflicted with what the wisdom that I was raised with, both in my schooling, in my home, none of it. It all has worked together. Everything has always belonged in a really rich, in a really rich way. It fills me as I'm saying it, really, with such gratitude. The miracles in my life that I would not have seen without you, without you. I would have missed so much. I would have missed so many of those fingerprints of the God of my understanding without you and without the practices that you invite me to participate in. When I had to do, um, you know, a fourth step, uh, we say now and now we look at martyrdom, mothering, managing, and manipulation, the four M's. Um, last month in my home group, somebody said, you know, I object to the mothering. Because mothering is a good thing. That's a good thing. Mothering, I think of it as, you know, compassion. I think of it as warmth. I think of it as nurturing. So I, cross-talking, said, how about smothering? Because I think that's really what we mean when we talk about that. Smothering. Because that's what I would do. So I would smother my kids. I would try to manipulate my husband. I always was the murderer. You know, always suffering. And so I had to look at those. I had to take a stock of my arsenal, as I say, of weapons of mass destruction, which were wreaking havoc in that relationship. And I had to become, I had to become willing to, you know, make amends for that. I had to be willing to, to um, change my behavior. And so I did, you know. I tried as best I could. I made a verbal amends. I tried to change my behavior. I had to do those things that I could see were um, were really not the woman that I wanted to be. That's what was so depressing for me. I think is that I could see myself acting in a way that I was. I mean, I just wasn't proud. I wasn't proud. I was becoming the kind of woman that I never liked. I never liked that kind of woman, and I'm becoming her, and I don't know how not to. But you, you offer me a program that gives me a, another way, another way. You introduce me to a God who can take all that chaos of my life and bring some peace to it. That can take all those wounds that I have felt and and put a healing balm on it. All those things I got and continue to get from Alan. So I hadn't been in the program long. I had only been in about three years before my husband was killed. He um, used to love to do dangerous things. One of which was to build his own, um, build his own helicopter. And he used to fly all the time. He used to drive me crazy because I was left in home with all these kids. And you were the ones that said to me, "Why would you want to take that away from him? If he loves it, if he loves it, why would you want to take that away from him?" And so my whole attitude about that changed. And so much of what you would tell me would change my attitude, change my perspective. And so the very last words I ever said to my husband was, wow, you have a beautiful day to fly, have a ball. And that was it. I never, you know, the next time I saw him, it was, you know, at the, at the funeral home. 
But an interesting thing happened when the, the deputy sheriff was giving, breaking this news to me. His mother came up along uh, behind me in the car, and she, they ran over and talked to her, and she came up to me after they gave her further word that her son, her adored son, was dead. She put her arms around me, and she said, And, you know, that to me was and continues to be a very powerful message. That I don't know why he's got five siblings that are in recovery, four, I think, four, who are recovering in AA. And he, and he tried it. He just terrified him. He just thought it was, what? Way too much happiness for him. He just scared him. I don't know why that is. They came out of the same place. Why did, why did these take to it like duck to water? And I don't know. Itself asks me to live with the mystery of it all and to be okay with it. That's what faith is. It's, I don't know why that is. It, it just is. But I know one thing that for my children to lose a father, I mean, I had seven minutes under the age of 14, it was a real loss. And it continues to be a real loss. But they are surrounded by a family who loves them, a big extended family who loves them, and a number of whom are in recovery. And that's a very powerful thing. And this is another thing, and this is strictly an opinion. There's this guy out in California in al who said to me, you can only say at the end of the meeting, the opinions, the opinions expressed here are strictly those that gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. That just, that's just goes for the opinions. Doesn't go for the principles of our program. Those you got to take. <laughs> I mean, you're either in or you're out. You know what I mean? And if you're in, you're buying into the principles. The opinions, whatever. But sometimes I think that some people have to die so that others can live. It's just, that's just my, my thought. Because today, my kids, even though it's been difficult for them, I know, without a father, some of them. Some of them were able to come into their own when it's that fearful person because he was scary. Was done. That's, that's, that's just the way that it was. Now, sometimes I say, oh my God, my kids were terrible. They really were not terrible. They were just exactly what you would expect kids to be when they only have one parent. And, and, and that parent happened to be me. I mean, really, I'm not much of a disciplinarian. I mean, they got past me all the time. Um, it's just, you know, that's just the way that it was. It's just the way that it was. But, but they're great kids today. And I've got some in recovery and some who are still, um, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing, honestly. I mean, I can't call them alcoholic, but uh, some of them, their drinking gets them in trouble. I don't know if that's usual when you're in your 30s, but there you have it. So one of them said to me, you know, Mom, I know I'm going to have to join again because uh, he's been in, but he's out now. He said, but I'm just not done with my drinking. And so, what do you say to that? Well, I always say, oh. <laughs> That's my skin response as a parent. Oh. <clears throat> so, very quickly, so there I am, and, um, you know, getting to meetings. I have the same sponsor today as I did when I first came in. Um, I don't know how I do without um, a sponsor. I don't know how I would 
have navigated all of this without that constant in my life. Without that constant in my life. The women that I sponsor today have been and continue to be a huge, huge blessing because they allow me to continue to share my experience so that my faith today is not theoretical. It's based, it's an experiential faith that comes from knowing and being in an inner relationship with the God of my understanding, which is, which is paramount to me, which is just critical to me. And, I, you know, I learned to rely on the wisdom of, of the group, no matter what group that may be. If I'm here in Indiana, if I'm back home in my own group, or any of the meetings that I attend, I never have to do it alone. I have a independent program who is a 911 operator, and she went through some training a few years ago, and they were taught that when someone is really serious and you're on the phone with them and it sounds like they're dying, dying that it's important to continue to say to that person, Help us on the way. Hang in there. You're going to be okay. Help us. They'll be there in a few minutes. Don't worry. Someone's coming to take you. Someone's coming to take care of you. And it seems to help for some of them. It seems to help them stay alive until the ambulance or the EMTs get there. That's pretty much what we do in Alamon. I mean, our primary purpose is, first of all, to welcome and give comfort to families of alcoholics. And what many of us have to share is simply that. Don't worry, you're going to be okay. You're not going to die. This is a fatal disease, but you can be okay. You can be okay. I was at a meeting one time with a German grandmother who was trying to raise this awful 14-year-old kid. Oh, I mean, I was in meetings with this 14-year-old kid. She was awful to kill her. But anyway, this old German grandmother shared. She had survived the, bom- the Allied bombing of Berlin. So she was not, I mean, she was a tough old bride. But she shared at the meeting that Eddie had taken her car and parked it on a railroad track because she just, she was just exhausted. She just couldn't take it anymore. And I thought to myself, that, that is the kind of desperation and bewilderment that would take a woman like that, that elderly German war survivor, to park her car the power of the disease of alcoholism. But our recovery program is, is stronger than that. My recovery program teaches me this. I am just a piece of my kid's life. I am not their whole life. And that's important for me to remember. And I let that in Al-Anon as a parent. I am just a piece. I am just one of many players in their life. I cannot make my children want what I want for them. You taught me that. You continue to teach me, don't take your kids personally. Oh, my God, don't take your kids personally. What my kids did growing up, they did just because they were kids. I I didn't take it personally. My mother would say, and still says, why would they do that to you? And I'm like, Mom, they're not doing it to me. They're just doing it because they're teenagers. When Rick died, we had nothing. I got a call from a local Catholic high school who called me and said, do you want to come here and teach? I understand you're looking for a job. We'll give you all your medical. Your kids can be a high school here for free when you're old enough. Just come and teach. I said, what are you talking about? I have this expired elementary school education certificate. And he said, we don't 
Okay. Just come, we'll figure that out later. Now, I don't know that they could do that today. But what it did was it placed me in a high school with kids. So for years, I didn't, most of my days were with kids of people under the age of 18. They're the ones that were primary teachers in showing me how to raise children. Teenagers did. They were invaluable to me. They would say things like, uh, you know, my mother keeps hiding my stuff, and she thinks that that works, but what it does is it helps me become sneakier. That made perfect sense to me. I thought, that's right. They would make you sneakier. You're right. Or, I mean, just a zillion things like that, you know. My mother grounded me this weekend, but you know what? You know who's really grounded? She is, because she has to stay home with me. That's exactly right. So my point is this. True it all. God, I mean, honestly, the help that I received through a God, you know, who is through an abundant God is, is well, I, I mean, it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. I took the kids one time to a brief counselor, and they were just being horrific, and he had them out. He said, for a minute, but no, go in the waiting room. We're not dealing with you. You're terrible. So we threw them all out, and I said to him, I don't know if I can raise these kids by myself. And he said, oh, you can't. You can't. He said, you're understaffed. And that was a very good thing for me to hear, that I was understaffed. Because one more time, it reminded me, we cannot do this alone. I am just a piece. My ego wants me to think that I'm the whole thing. Well, I'm not. I'm just a piece. I'm also just a piece of my own recovery. An important piece, but I'm still just, just a piece. So, anyway, I'm going to just, I, I, well, don't. I have a lot of stories, but I'm on time. Because it's too long, and who cares anyway? All I know is this. is that, for me, you know, living with a poverty of spirit is very, very important. For me, you know, the most powerful amends I can make to my kids, even today, is to give them a healthy parent. That's important. To do those inventories, to pay attention, to live a life that is intentional is important for me today, one day at a time. I don't know how much time I have. I think I have today. And I don't want to waste this valuable time carrying resentments, blaming other people, um, looking at what I don't have as opposed to just, just loving what I do have. All those lessons, all those principles I've learned in Al-Anon and I continue to learn in Al-Anon. But I'll tell you, Prayer and meditation, this is and continues to be a critical element of my recovery. I'm meaning sometimes now hear someone say, well, I do my best praying when I'm driving the car. And I think, well, well tell me what route you take, because I don't want to be on the road with you. Really, my relationship with God, like any important relationship, involves time. And I have only willing to carve that out of my day. That's what I know. I have got to be willing to carve that out of my day, or I'm inauthentic. I'm inauthentic. I'm playing at a relationship with, with the God of my understanding. I'm not really serious about it. Not if I'm not willing to give it time. I'm just not. And that, of course, can take a zillion different, zillion different um, manifestations, but I know that's true for me. And so... Um, 
I don't know. That's about all I know to tell you the truth. Um, one interesting thing that happened, um, that, that cute little guy from Indiana came back into my life. He just uh, contacted me some years ago and um, moved back to Indianapolis, wondered if we could you know, be able to have reconnect on some level because we always got along so well, which is the truth. And so we did. We started this long-distance thing between Indianapolis and Cincinnati. And, um, it's, it, it's so funny you just celebrated 26 years in uh, AA. And what's really funny is Rick's sister uh, threw him a threw him a 25-year party last year. I mean, how does that all work? I don't know, but that's the way it was. So. Um, we got married about 10 years ago, and I'd like to say to people, you know, he was very married before. He has no children. That's what I call a double winner. And so it's just really, um, you know, it's been a delight. But marriage, of course, brings up, you know, new issues, new temptations to grow in new and different ways, you know, to practice my program and to be serious about the kind of woman I believe God created me. So with that, I just want to say that it's been, it's been uh, a joy to be with you uh, this weekend, and thank you for the opportunity to share.